And if you have a Bible, hope you do. We're in Psalm chapter 43 as we continue our Summer Psalms series. Just one more week in the Psalms. We're not covering all of them, of course, but we picked out a few. Maybe not uh, a few of the most well-known ones, but ones that I think that should be well-known and well-read by the people of God. So we're going to begin today by reading this short psalm, just five verses, and we'll learn a lot from this text today, I believe. So hopefully you'll, our hearts are ready to receive and uh, hear from what God has for us. So Psalm 43, this is David writing to God in a time of trouble. Uh, vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man, for you are the God of my strength. Why do you cast me off? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Oh, send your light and your truth. Let them lead me and let them bring me to your holy hill, to your tabernacle or your presence. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And on the harp I will praise you, O oh God, my God. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. The help of my countenance and my God. I think everybody can remember being a kid and uh, wanting to talk to someone about something, but you couldn't find someone to listen to you. Can anybody relate to that? Um, I don't think that's just something I experienced. Um, if it is something that only I experienced, no wonder I'm doing this for, with my life, right? Um, talking to people uh, that can't, that you, I guess you can leave, I've, people do sometimes. Um, but uh, I think there's a lot of factors as to why sometimes we can't get mainly adults to pay attention to us or listen to us. Um, we don't really perceive it or aren't aware of it when we're little. Um, we don't have a clue uh, to what's going on. And, and, you know, as kids, you know, sometimes we talk really loud, but we don't realize we're talking really loud. Uh, you know, I still do that as an adult. Lindsay tells me all the time that I talk, I talk really loud. But uh, I can't help it. I'm always kind of in a talking loud voice, right? Um, but we also can be pretty clueless as kids to, to, you know, when it's the wrong time to talk about something. You know, you can, we all, as kids, you, you can kind of be insensitive to the environment or situation you're in. Uh, maybe you shouldn't be jabbering about some random thing at a certain place in time, you know, it's not always the right place in the right time. But, but all those are different elements that, that can factor in why your parents or why some adult maybe would tell you to shush um, and they would do it kind of in a, in a mean way. I don't, you know, maybe not a mean way. They would just do it in a very, a very blunt way, right? Uh, but when we just wanted to talk about something that was just a crazy cool thing on our minds, we saw it, we just were excited about it. You know, we don't really understand why someone doesn't want to doesn't listen to us. You know, we all have different personalities. Our personalities are shaped over time as we, as we grow and go through things. But, uh, but I think that every one of us as, as a kid ha, can, can remember or can relate to uh, just wanting to be heard and, and liking knowing that somebody was there to talk to us, right? You know, as a kid, you know, regardless if you're the quietest kid in the room, there's a, some point in your life where you just want someone to talk to and you like knowing that somebody's there to listen to you. Um, even me, I'm pretty quiet by nature. Um, uh, as a kid, I'd talk your ears off about whatever I was into at the time, a show, a game, or some something I had just seen. Uh, and I'm still like that to those that are close to me. I think all of us are like that to, to our inner circles. Um, and, and heck, some of you some of you will talk to a complete stranger about something that's on your mind. And that's great if you're that outgoing. Um, but uh, maybe you can relate especially and remember uh, what it was like as a kid to be told, now's not the time 
to be talking uh, about that or really be talking at all. And, you know, as adults, we're able to read the room. Uh, we're able to, to know when it's inappropriate to start talking. Uh, we also can kind of tell when somebody's just not interested, right? And, you know, as, and as an adult, you know, you can be talking, talking, talking. There's some people that are oblivious to it. They'll talk and talk and talk and talk, and they just don't even realize that nobody wants to listen to what they have to say. And, and, and that happens sometimes to me. But here's, here's the thing, though. Um, looking back to my five-year-old self uh, that, that just wanted to go on and on about whatever, random thing was on my mind, uh, we kind of understand why we got shushed. You know, when you're an adult, you look back and think, well, yeah, I understand that I probably shouldn't have been talking about that at, at that point in time. Maybe we were being too loud. Maybe we were being annoying. But, you know, kids will be kids, and, and kids shouldn't be discouraged from being kids. Uh, you know, give them time. They'll mature, and, and they learn uh, when it's right and when it's not, not right. Um, However, even if we can read the room and even if we can get the picture from people that they, they don't really want to talk to us or don't want to listen to us, it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt our feelings, right? Of course it hurts our feelings. We might not cry like we did when we were little, uh, but it still is a little bit of a letdown when we really want to talk about something or really need to be heard about a certain subject matter. And the people that should be there to listen to us aren't there. Nine times out of ten, uh, the thing we want to talk about, need to talk about as adults, is probably a bigger deal than whatever it was when we were little that we got told not the time. Uh, th this is something that I think we all struggle with, uh, listening to others, listening to others talk about things that maybe don't interest, in us, interest us or aren't relevant to us. That's something you struggle with the people that you're closest to, and you might not. You might think, well, it doesn't matter if you know you're not. I'm not married to you or in a house with you. I really don't have to listen to you. Maybe that, that's how you feel, and that's how you think. I think there's. I think there's. Uh, 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 as a Christians, I think we know that there's a, there's a lesson to learn there. But but while some of us are more inclined and more intentional, all of us have those moments when someone just wants to talk to us, and we kind of check out. And we've heard, we've had those moments where we, you know, check out to other people and, 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 you know, we respond to someone that way just like they've responded to us that way. Now, this isn't the sermon, but this really comes down to a matter of learning how to love people and taking sincere steps to relate and care for others. This is why you can almost sum up the entire Christian ethic, the entire New Testament message with just a handful of verses that are all about that subject. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says that there, may, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So a consistent theme in the New Testament is that we as the body of Christ, we as believers in his family, we should always care for each other. And part of caring for each other is listening to one another. And it's to lend an ear to one another. Of course, lending a hand to one another. Also, Romans 12, 15 goes on to say, rejoice with those that rejoice. Weep with those who weep. So part of that requires listening to somebody's point of rejoicing, listening to somebody's reason for their sorrow. So we as a church, we as Christians, we are commanded and expected to take interest in and invest in one another. If that's not how you were taught church should be or how church was presented to you, it's because they weren't reading the Bible to you. That's all over the Bible. You can't avoid it. So as a church, we are commanded, and, and this might be stating the obvious, but it's necessary, I think. How are you going to rejoice with somebody if you don't know why they're rejoicing, if you don't listen to them and show interest to them? How are you going to bear someone's burden if you don't first hear them out? and listen to their worries, and listen to their woes, and show them that you actually care about what they're struggling with? Answer is you can't. 
if you don't listen. So there's this invitation to bring our voice to the table. But there's also this obligation to hear out every voice at the table. Church, you know, when we get to heaven, um, 95% of what we're going to be judged, judged for in eternity is this. Did we listen to people that came to the table? How did we care for one another? The reality, though, people don't always do this. Christians don't always do what they're supposed to do, oddly enough, uh, in regard to listening to us when we need someone to hear us and talk to us. As great as it would be for this to always be the case, as much as this should be the case, and as much as this will always be the expectation over every church member, over every believer, you just can't always count on this. Sadly, you just can't always count on it. When you need someone to listen to you and need someone to talk to, you just can't always depend on people being there for you as much as they should be, as much as they'll be judged for being, uh, having been there, having not been there. So let's zoom out a little bit uh, and lift up from the ground. Do you know why? Do you know why the church is commanded to listen, to always lend an ear and a hand, particularly to those who are struggling and hurting? Do you know why the church is expected to do more than just listen, but also lean in and lend a hand? Do you know why this is our standard? This is the expectation over everybody from new to, to experience? Because that's exactly what God did for us, right? That's exactly what Jesus did for us. Romans 15, maybe a scripture that you haven't read before, but should. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves, as in do what you want to do. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, for his lifting up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So what is the gospel? That Christ bore our reproach. And what is the command over the church? That we should bear the reproach of others. And how are we going to bear the reproach of others if we don't first listen to them? So here's the good news. No matter how the church is doing it, obeying this command, and again, that's a whole other sermon. You've heard me preach that sermon a hundred times. Not today. That's just a little bit of an intro. But when we get to heaven, right, this is what we're going to be, you know, going to be held accountable for. How well did we follow Jesus' shoes and do what he did? But the good news is, and this is so, such a good news, because people don't always live up to their expectations. People fail. The good news is we are at the mercy of others when it comes to finding relief and support. As good as it is when people are there for us. Because even if the church has a poor job at fulfilling its calling, the one who modeled this ministry, who made this approach a lifestyle, he will always be there. Ultimately, that's why we don't rely on a building or a body or a group of people to save us. But our faith is in Jesus who carried our burdens, who saved, uh, died for us on the cross. He is who saved us. As much as we should always be there for people, Jesus is the one that you can always count on. He came to earth, made it known that God is not detached nor impersonal. He's invested in us and is interested in all of us. Jesus gives us the confidence that God can be related to and God can be relied on. He said in John 14, if you, had known, if you, had, if you know me, it should say, you will know my Father also. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He's not saying I look like the Father. He's saying I am the Father in motion. If you want to know what God is like, look at me. I have loved you. I have been present for you. I have rolled my sleeves up and washed your feet. I have bore your burdens. I will go to the cross and die for your sins. If you want to know what God is like, look at me, Jesus says. And isn't that encouraging to know that God is not an impersonal God? Jesus is the physical in motion proof 
of what God is like, of what God thinks about you and how God feels about you. But while Jesus is the living proof, breathing proof, he wasn't the first notion that God could be approached and that God welcomed us to come to him and bring our burdens and bring our worries, that God wanted to listen to us and lend a hand to us. Before Jesus and standing alongside Jesus, showing the heart of God, showing the nature of God is the book of Psalms. While many of the Psalms are these temple-sanctioned confessionals leading people in worship, many of them are written by worship leaders to give people a, a, a song to sing to God, to give thanks to God, to give praise to God. Over a third of them, it's a big deal, over a third of them are called laments, or that's the type of Psalm they are, laments. 60 plus, about 63 out of 150. That's a lot of them, right? Over a third of them, really 40%, are laments. And if you aren't familiar, as we've been talking about listen, pouring our heart out and, and, and bringing our burdens to others and bringing them to God, that's what a lament is. A lament is a psalm uh, that, is meant, that carries a person's sorrow and anxiety to God. Unfiltered emotional expressions. The Psalms uh, that are laments teach us that it's never inappropriate. It's never untimely to cry out to God. And maybe more importantly, they teach us that God hears us and that God welcomes us to bring our pain to him. The fact that he preserves so many in the Bible proves that there is nothing that any of us cannot ever or should not ever bring to God. Whether out of sorrow or anger or fear or depression or anxiety or confusion or frustration, laments show us that God will lean in and God will hear us with full intention of responding with his goodness and grace. When it comes to God, we never have to wonder if he's annoyed by us. He never shushes anybody. God welcomes us with all that we might bring to him, our anger, our confusion, our wounds, and our hurt. So as we, are, as we are about to go from this surface level into this particular psalm, I hope it's been clearly presented to you by the Spirit to your heart that God doesn't just love you, he actually likes you. He actually is interested in you. He cares for you. He wants you to confide in him. And he is never weary by your dependency on him. I think a lot of times that a lot of church members don't know this about God. A lot of us have colored God with our own shortcomings and our own flaws. This is a big, big deal, I think, that's hurt a lot of people throughout the years. That's hurt a lot of Christians or believers from getting all that they could from God. Our patience wears thin, so God must not have good patience either. We can't see the appeal in that, so how could God ever see the appeal in that? And you can see what happens when a church is ran by this kind of mentality, that God gets colored with pencils that he should never be colored with, right? That God gets presented in a way that he should never be presented in. We can't relate, so God probably can't either. Or flip that around. No one seems to be patient with me, so I guess God could never be patient with me either. No one seems to relate to me or take interest in me, so I guess God must feel the same way about me. The Psalms, particularly the laments, overcome all those assumptions and answer all of our questions that I think a lot of us, most of us have. Deciding on which lament to focus on in this series was tough because there are so many, again, 60 plus, they carry a very unique message in, in all their different texts. Some of them feature David completely overwhelmed, dejected, full of anger and pain, and he just unloads his heart to God. And he just says whatever he's thinking. It's a stream of consciousness. I mean, if you ever, if you ever wonder, can I be honest with God? 
I mean, God already, already knows what you're thinking. I mean, so we should probably already understand this. But I understand that maybe you think, can I really go to God and say that to him? I don't know if I should. I don't know if he'll be happy with me about that. If you ever wonder, can you just bring whatever is on your heart to God? None of us ever have to worry if God's going to strike us for asking him to do something, even if it is completely wild and unscriptural. You can bring whatever's on your heart to God. If it's from pain and anger and frustration, God says, just come to me and talk to me. David, on one occasion, prayed this. Oh, God, break the teeth in their mouths. I mean, I don't know where else they would have teeth, but you see David being very literal, right? God, break their teeth off. You can tell he was a little bit upset, right? A little angry. Now, let me just confirm your suspicion. God didn't go and do this. He didn't say, okay, David, I'll answer your prayer. He didn't answer that prayer for David. But God, but God also didn't chastise David for asking that, even if it was very vindictive. God didn't say, shame on you, David, you shouldn't say that. God put it in the Bible. I mean, if God didn't want you, people say, Justin, you shouldn't show that to people. They might go and pray that prayer. It's in the Bible, right? So, yeah, it's okay to go to God and be honest. What else should you be to God? God welcomes this sort of expression. In fact, this, I think this should really enlighten us with the posture and attitude with which we should pray. Of course, we ought to always have reverence for God when we pray. But this idea that unless we have this super devote, super holy, intensely studied disposition, you know, you shouldn't pray or approach God unless you're super, you know, polished or super eloquent. I mean, that's just not true. Or maybe even that you can't approach God, you know, that, that you, know, you shouldn't approach God unless you can pray like them or talk like them. Listen, that's farthest from the truth. And I understand why we get intimidated. I understand why certain people, preachers and, and people that pray and do things out loud, that maybe makes you feel like, hey, I'm not really able to do this. But, but listen, that's not the message of the Bible. And shame on anybody like me that's wore one of these that's made you feel that way. So often... We allow our anger and anxiety, our fear and frustration to prevent us from praying and talking to God. We believe the lie that God only wants to talk to us when we're refined and buttoned up, when our emotions are in check. And that's not true. And this is why we're looking at Psalm 43. Because Psalm 43 features David very confused. He's very conflicted. He's juggling all kinds of emotions. But also it shows us how he arrives at clarity and it's all contained in just, just a handful of verses. It's a roller coaster ride. Unlike any other passage in the Bible, it's not written in a controlled environment by a level-headed scholar. It's written by a man who is bangled, banged up and bruised internally, yet he wrestles through his thoughts and sorts through his questions and obtains a perspective that helps all of us. Another thing about this psalm, it's all over the place in terms of David's thoughts. For that reason, it's kind of messy. It's kind of messy. He goes from talking about what's bothering him from outside to what's bothering him on the inside. And it can be a bit confusing if you try to read it as some refined, formulated piece of Scripture. Because it's not that. It's a raw, unfiltered, unpolished, real and authentic prayer from a real and authentic man. If you've ever worried that you're not eloquent enough to come to God or talk to God, this psalm is for you. So I want to break it down. One verse at a time, we, got, we, got, we don't have many to go through, so we'll be fine to get through it all. So verse 1, David says, vindicate me, O God. Plead my cause. So he's not asking for God to break their teeth off this time. He's saying, hey, God, you take care of them. That's a good perspective, good, good, good place to start. God, vindicate me. Plead my cause against an ungodly nation. Deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. 
So first, David talks to God about what's going on around him and how it's bothering him. These people, these situations that he's going through, they're bothering him. They're, 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 they're afflicting him. So David tries to sort through all his troubles. He starts with the obvious. He's got adversaries. He's got enemies. He's got obstacles. And they're out to get him. Making it hard on him. The main takeaway here is that even though he's distressed and overcome with all kinds of emotion, he refused to take matters into his own hands. He brings those enemies to God. How much grief? How much grief could we save ourselves if we just did what David did? Instead of trying to get some satisfying level of revenge with our own hands, because here's the problem with your revenge and your idea of vengeance. Our vengeance is never fully and finally satisfied. If you feed that appetite that wants revenge, it only gets bigger and it gets agitated and it gets instigated. Revenge is never fully and finally satisfied. So David turns those over to God. He turns those people over to God. But he doesn't dwell on the outside. Because he's equally or maybe more so concerned with what's going on inside of his heart. You know, whether he was making a point or making this point or not, there's something here for us that I think we need to hear. Often our issues with other people, and this isn't the rule, but this is often the case. Often our issues with other people, it's not entirely because of their misbehavior. Not to defend what they're doing. And someone should never say to you, hey, don't worry about what I'm doing. It's, it's your problem. But there are situations, not when we're being hurt or abused or things like that, but there are situations where... The problem really isn't the people around us. The problem is that some things are just not okay in our hearts. And even if somebody is doing everything they should do around us, we are disconnected from that reality and we can't perceive what they're doing because something just isn't right in us. If you don't catch it, we're not going to get along with anybody, not even if somebody's catering to our wills. Self-awareness is important. So helpful when we're down and discouraged, struggling and full of sorrow and in stress. Sometimes the root of our troubles is our own heart, which leads us to verse 2. And while it may not be your first conclusion, it's here that David reveals that he has a wounded heart. For you are the God of my strength or the God of my refuge. But then he makes a contrary statement. Why do you cast me off? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? So here, here is David admitting that there are some things that he believes and there is a refuge he knows is in God, yet there is something that's disconnecting him from experiencing that. So here's what he's doing. David admits that his refuge is in the Lord, then that he should be able, if his refuge is in the Lord, he should be able to rise above the enemies and overcome the obstacles. And that's why I love this psalm. It's so relatable. David comes to God with it as a mess. His thoughts are all over the place. It's in his messiness that we see he's honest with God and he receives the most help from God. David says, I've put my faith in God as my refuge and my stronghold, but I'm still feeling rejection. I'm still feeling dejection. I'm still going about mourning full of sorrow and disgrace. So maybe you can relate to that. You've put your faith in God. You've sang out that you're believing and trusting in God. Yet in your heart, you don't feel that refuge. You've confessed it and you, you know, I think with all your heart, believe it. But there is something inside of you that doesn't feel it. Here's what I know. God never rejects those that put refuge in him. God never says to someone who turns to him, I don't have help for you. I, 
am not enough for your problems. There's not room in my strong tower for someone with as messy a heart like yours. In fact, he welcomes us whenever we run to him. He meets us halfway or even farther than that and embraces us and adorns us. So Psalm 34 verse 8 tells us, Taste and see the Lord is good. Blessed is the man or happy is the man who takes refuge in him. 34, 28, 22 says, The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So we know that if you take refuge in the Lord, you are not cast off. That you're not forsaken. Yet David has put his faith in God, yet he feels forsaken. Do you, do you see what's going on here? We know that if your refuge is in God, you'll never be condemned, you'll never be forsaken, you'll never be cast away. In spite of all that he offers us, sometimes we don't feel all that he pours out to us. It's kind of like this. Have you ever tried to use your hand when it's fallen asleep? Or walk on a foot when, you've fallen, when it's fallen asleep? It's numb. The function may be there, but there's a disconnect in the feeling and the ability. Your brain says, I should be able to walk, but your foot says, no, nah, no, nah, nah, I can't do this. You can't feel what should be an opportunity for you. I don't, think, I don't think what David is experiencing and confessing is that uncommon in the experience of an average believer for any of us. This is what it means to say that David had a fractured and wounded soul, a divided and conflicted heart. David is torn between what he believed and what he was having trouble believing. I think that every Christian that's ever lived can relate to that. Have you ever been there? Where you believe a certain number of things, but you also are having trouble believing a certain number of things, and there's just this, this, this tension in your heart. And maybe you've never been brave enough to admit it, or maybe you've never been aware enough to admit it. We'll talk about that. There's a story in the Gospel of Mark where this idea is further fleshed out. In the days of Jesus, God is in flesh, so Satan naturally responded by unleashing demons left and right on the earth to try to overshadow what God was doing on the earth. God's in one man, so I'll send my demons out to as many people as I can get a hold of. Punctuating just how broken and unjust the world was apart from what Jesus came to do, one of those demons sees a young boy who was at the complete mercy of this possession. This boy was being tormented. Literally, he was being picked up and thrown to the ground. The demon was attempting to drown him and burn him. But from the outside, it just looked like the boy was out of his mind. But the father knew something wasn't right. He would scream and cry out for help, but there was no help for him. The, the boy's father no doubt took him to the temple, and the religious leaders said, Get away from here. We have nothing for your kind. There's nothing we can do for you. The fact that your son was possessed proves that God doesn't want anything to do with you. Then the man heard about Jesus. How he accepted the outcast could help anybody. So he came to the place that Jesus was supposed to be. But Jesus was up on the mountain praying. So he got the disciples instead. Which didn't always work out for good. In, in this instance it wasn't good. So he brings the boy to the disciples, and, and just, just like the man, uh, they didn't treat, just like the temple, they didn't treat him much better. Basically, they told him there was nothing they could do. The man was about to walk away, hopeless and defeated, but then Jesus showed up. 
down the mountain. Jesus embraced the man and embraced the son. He immediately sensed something wasn't right. So the father explained to Jesus, and Jesus told him there was help. There was refuge. There was relief. The father, understandably, having been jerked around by all these different people before, told so, had been told so much and having been through so much, he tells Jesus he believes that God can help them, but he makes a confession that is so important that many of us have never had the courage to say out loud. He cries out to Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. That kind of sounds contradictory, doesn't it? But it's so real and it's so relatable. The man said, Jesus, I believe in you. I know who you are. I've seen you do these things. But there's something in me that just doesn't really believe it's real or true for me. The man like David said, I, I'm leaning on you, Jesus, but there's a whole lot of me that's leaning away from you. To be clear, this isn't ideal. This isn't where we should be, but often it's where we are. But until we confess with the intention of seeking help, we won't ever get better. So I'm just going to assume that I think all of us are, have been here. Maybe you're here right now. So I think it would be helpful if we just said those words together to God today. I believe. Help my unbelief. That, you know, this might not be your memory verse, right? You might not write this verse down and put it on your, your, your dashboard or in your, you know, in your car, but maybe you should. Somebody gets in the car with you and they see that and they're thinking, man, what, am I, what have I gotten myself into, right? You don't put this on your, you know, you don't put this out for people to see because it makes you feel like you're weak or it looks like you're weak, but let's just be honest, most of us are, right? Most of us, you know, oh, you know, I've never wavered or doubted in my life. I mean, good, get real, right? Everybody has. And maybe you aren't aware that you have, and I'm not trying to get inside your head. I just kind of, I think a lot of us aren't aware that we have serious doubts. So there, I think there's two kinds of people in any given gathering. And I would, I would venture to say that you're one of these kinds of people. There is so much unbelief in our hearts. You're either afraid to admit it, or you're completely unaware of it. Some of us are just nervously singing along in church. We hope it clicks for us, but there's, there's just this fear that I don't know if I can say it out loud. I mean, I was, you know, some preacher told me a long time ago if I had doubts and I wasn't really saved, and yet just, you don't know what to do with it. Can God handle that? And then there's the other, the, the others of us, we're so religious and we're so routine, but we've suppressed the real side of us. We've suppressed our real thoughts and we've, been, we've never been told we can bring our heart to God, our real, raw, uncovered heart. So we don't, we've, we've just, we're numb to it. We, don't even, we aren't even aware that we have unbelief. Yet our real life expresses that we have a whole lot of unbelief because we're putting trust in all the wrong places. And that should prove it to us. Meanwhile, we walk out of here to the real world and we're either fully overwhelmed or we're, we're clinging to idols that aren't anything to do with God. And yet we try to associate God with those idols because we want to feel better about ourselves. But that's just, all that's doing is perpetuating the problem. So I'm going to poke a little bit at what I think the fractured hearts in all of us need to hear. We come in, we confess that God is our refuge, but then we leave here and we cling to everything but God is our refuge. Our words say one thing, but our actions and our habits suggest another thing. More importantly, our emotions reveal another thing. We lift up songs of hope here, but our hearts sink with dread out there. 
Our flesh thinks to blame God for our hopelessness or panic as if God has dropped the ball. Think about how we react to political turmoil and economic stress. We melt. We are undone when things go the wrong way in the world. How do you react whenever your life goes off the rails? In the personal areas of your life, in your professional, you know, any area of your life. When things don't go as we expect them to go, maybe our standards are too high, but regardless, when things go left or right on any given day, we, are, we go off the rails. We feel rejected. We feel defeated. But we believe, don't we? I mean, you're right, we believe. I'm not saying you don't believe, but man, our lives don't really suggest that we believe. We believe, but what good is that faith doing us? It's held back by outstanding remaining unbelief. Do you hear me on that? I, I, I don't doubt that you believe. But there's some unbelief holding you back, isn't there? David admitted that he shouldn't have this condition. Jesus told the Father, hey, you don't have to remain with this conflicted heart. You, you know, Jesus' response to that man that day is often assumed to only be regarding his son's demon possession. But I think the response is equally appropriate for the dad's problem or the dad's struggle. He says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. He doesn't, you know, people say, well, he's talking about the demon. But I don't think it's just the demon. I think he's talking to the boy's dad. Hey, you've got unbelief. The only way you're going to wrestle through that unbelief is you're going to have to devote your heart to God in prayer. That little belief you have, that 20% belief or that 30% belief or even 10% belief, you've got to hold on to that with all you can and turn to God in that belief. If you're tired of having this kind of divided and conflicted heart, if you're tired of having a soul wearied and weighed down, Check out this warning that Jesus gave, also an admonition. But this is one of the most underrated, overlooked lessons that Jesus ever gave. Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with the dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. Now, let me explain what those are. Dissipation is you're just living hedonistically. You're just doing everything to make you feel, feel better about yourself and do things for yourself because you're thinking that's going to help you de-stress. And it's not making you any less stressed. It's just making you more overwhelmed. And we know what drunkenness means. But then he says cares of this life. But the point of it is some people drown out the cares of this life with substances. Others are so overwhelmed by the cares of this life, they don't need drugs or alcohol. They're already numb. I'm not trying to make light of it, right? Some of us, we're so overwhelmed, we don't, have, we, we don't try to use something to get out of our minds. We're, our, we're so overwhelmed and numb, we don't even know if we feel anything anyway. Right? I mean, it's real. Depression is real. Like, that, that, that kind of burden is real, right? Regardless, the worries of this life will cripple us if we don't admit we have them and bring them to God. Jesus goes on to say, They'll be like a trap over us. It will come upon us all. It will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that are going to happen to you. You're going to go through some ups and downs, a lot of downs. You're going to face this uncertainty. You're going to be overwhelmed. And you're going to be tempted to go all sorts of directions with your life. But come on, unless you pray and maximize that little bit of faith you have, you won't be able to endure. If you're a believer, 
A, you're overwhelmed and you don't think to come, you don't think you can come to God. The whole message, this whole message has hopefully corrected your assumption. If you're someone who believes, but you have struggle with your faith and you are overwhelmed by things that you don't understand, hopefully this message has reminded you that God does not say, I don't have room for you, I don't have a place for you, I don't have time for you. God says, come to me. And if you're someone who's pretended and you've found a dozen ways to cope or escape, and your soul is becoming more and more divided in the meantime, this message pleads to you to come back to God and be real and raw and unfiltered with him. There's a whole lot of comfort in this world, a lot of things that will temporarily relieve your stress, but eventually that divided heart will catch up to you. You'll crash and you'll burn out and you'll wonder what you even believe or if you even believe. So David confesses that God is his refuge, but he also asks himself the question, if God is my refuge, why, why am I such a mess? We know why, don't we? Because we know what David was going through, don't we? So here's David's prayer. Send your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, into your dwelling place, to your tabernacle. Then I will go to the altar of God, to the God of my exceeding joy. And on the harp I will praise you, O God, my God. So this is David's prayer to God, that he might overcome this divide, this remarkable prayer, the kind of prayer that Jesus says is the only way out of this kind of place, mentally and spiritually. It's very simple. It's just four simple points. Send your light. Bring me into your dwelling. Become my joy and bring out my praise. Send your light. God, it's the only thing that's going to lead me out of this is your light. Bring me to wherever you are. You know, we, we pray, we tell God, we're very specific with God, aren't we? God, I want to be here, not there. I don't want to go through that. I want to avoid that. David says, God, I just want to be where you are. I want to be in your dwelling place. I want to be under your light, in your dwelling place. I want you to be my joy, and I want to be a vessel of praise for you. Do, do, you, notice how, do you notice how this prayer is totally upward in its nature? We often pray for God to help us and be our one true source of salvation, but then we start telling him all the stuff we need in the meantime. Right, I'm just picking on this, but this is true, right? God, you're my savior. You're my source of, of hope. You're my strength. But God, I need all this temporary stuff in the meantime if I'm really going to be happy. And God's thinking, what you want, me or that? Listen, those kind of prayers are not going to fix our hearts. They're just going to make us, they're just going to exacerbate the problem and make them worse. David's prayer is totally and fully upward in his focus. We must not shackle our prayers down to this earth, but tether them to God alone. David says, God, I need your light. I need your truth. I need your presence. I want you to be my joy. I want you to be my praise. We need to let need God to lead us to where he's at, that our joy would be anchored in him, that our song will be louder in him. Listen, if that prayer is too vague for you, because you want to, that tells me that you're leaning into the unbelief. If that prayer's too vague, oh, I want to, I got to tell God everything I need. Jesus, what did Jesus say? Your father knows what you need. Didn't he say that? Your father knows what you need. Don't lean into the unbelief. The unbelief in you is saying, oh, I got to make sure I have this, this, that. Everything's got to be perfect. But the belief in you is saying, I just need God. 
So don't feed that appetite. Don't feed that unbelief. It's just going to get bigger if you do. Don't say, well, God, this is going to happen in Washington. This is going to happen at work. This is going to happen in the world. I mean, God's looking down thinking, well, you don't really want me, do you? You want that stuff. We don't need to feed that unbelief. That unbelief is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and make it worse and worse and worse. Lean into God alone. Your light, your presence, your joy, your praise. That's what our goal is. This is how we endure all that's working against us. Last verse, and we're done. This is David talking to himself. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you disquieted or downcast within me? Hope in God, for I will praise him in the, the help of my countenance and my God. David takes a moment. In light of where he has just placed his hope, David preaches to himself. This is one of the most remarkable verses in the entire Bible, and I hope that you can just listen to me for the next few minutes. If you haven't got anything else, I think there's something rich here. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher and a physician, a doctor from London from the last century, he had a gift of seeing how the spiritual and physical were intertwined and connected. The Psalms in this particular, in this one in particular, reveals that that our being is affecting our different sides, all of our being, everything that we're going through, physically and spiritually. And this psalm encourages us to bring that to God, who obviously is spirit, but also he's the maker and master of our flesh. We can trust him with our problems across the board. So Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote about the consistent battle and conflict, our belief being weighed down by our unbelief. Listen to what he said. Have you ever realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? You are listening to yourself and how you are being, uh, how you're being confirmed in all your worries and suspicions and problems and doubts. You're listening to that unbelief, but you are not taking the stand and talking to yourself about what you believe. Take those thoughts that come to you in the moment that you wake up. You're not, you're, you've not originated them, but they are talking to you. They bring back the problems from yesterday. Somebody's talking. Who's talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment in Psalm 43 was this. Instead of allowing himself to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. I know that's a bit wordy, but do you see what he's saying? Instead of having his unbelief affirmed as soon as he wakes up, he takes the stance, he takes the platform and says to himself, why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Hope in God. His soul has been depressing him. He stands up and says, soul, I've got something to say to you. When you've set your hope in God, your flesh is going to do everything to undo that. Undermine that. You are going to have to make a choice and point in a point to tell your flesh to take a back seat and remind your soul of where your hope is. If you don't do this, your unbelief will rise up and tell you to, put, to step back, put you in that place of uncertainty, and will take you down roads you are not, not 
pleased with at all that you know are not good for you. You know that are not good for anyone around you. You have got to take that stance and remind your soul. Soul, why are you downcast? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. Listen, the battle is endless. But as constant and depressing as the struggle may be, the relief and refuge from God can be all the more present and uplifting. But we've got to rely on God's light, seek his dwelling. He must be our joy. He must be our praise through it all. And if something in you says, I need more, that is unbelief trying to rope you back in and hold you down because it doesn't want you to get help. It's real. It's a battle that we all face. Our hope must be in him so that our help can be found and felt in him. But we've got to rely on God's light. There are over 60 prayers in the book like this that tells us there's no magic wand to wave over any of us. There's nothing that a preacher or an experience at church is going to do that's going to make this battle end for you, for any of us. There are 60 prayers, many by the same person, because the battle didn't end. The battle only got even more complicated sometimes. It takes persistent prayer. Focusing on the Lord, but with the persistence of our prayer comes the guarantee of God's presence. Why are you cast down on my soul? Hope in God. No matter how dark it may feel, no matter how numb you may feel, no matter how tempted you are to go down a certain road to find that relief, there is definitive exclusive help in the Lord. Even in your unbelief, he can give you a stronger faith. He can give you more faith. But you and I have got to take a stance as the spirit moves. And you and I have got to make a choice. I'm not trying to say that unless you make a decision right now, you can't make it later. But when we're in a place like this and the Spirit of God is moving and the Word of God is being spoken out loud and we're all in agreement as to why we're doing this, this is the best chance to get the help that we need. When God begins to speak to you and you, have, you are aware that there's belief but there's unbelief, there's a battle that I've got to deal with, you have to take that stance right here, right now and say to your soul, why are you downcast? Hope in God. And you've got to set your eyes on heaven and say it's God's light, it's God's presence, it's his joy, and it's his praise. That's what I want. And when the enemy says you need more, you rebuke that voice and you say, I am hoping in the Lord. If you have to do this 15 times a day, that's what you've got to do, right? But there's every time you do it, there is absolute, without question, relief and refuge coming from God. So why wouldn't you do it every minute of every day? Why wouldn't you just dwell in this place at all times? Why wouldn't you? That's not a weakness. That's not a flaw of yours. That's not a, 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 a problem that you have. That's just you relying on God. And listen, just like when you were little, when you wanted someone to talk to, God never says, shh, I don't got time for you. God says, why don't you come back more often? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the invitation to get real help. Lord, our world is full of a lot of, a lot of faulty, unproven, dangerous avenues.
we fill our minds and our bodies with so much. We're weighed down by the cares of this world. And yet our hope is only found in you. Our help is only found from you. Lord, this isn't to disregard our physical and our health and our mental. This isn't regarding, disregarding all that. But it's reminding us that under all that uncertainty and under all that, that that can't be controlled and can't be relied on, there is an anchor for our souls. There is a refuge for our wearied souls. And we can make the decision that our unbelief, it may be big and it may be uh, overwhelming, but our belief in a God who loves us and cares for us and is here for us, that is where we are going to put our faith and put our hope. So God, would you move in this room and would you bring real help to people? Would you help them to make a decision today that they're not going to let their soul be downcast anymore because you give them the authority and you give them the power and you give them the help to say to their souls, why are you downcast? Hope in God. And there's real help. There's real help to be found. We ask this in the real Savior's name. Amen.